This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Just over one million individuals in the United States are living with HIV today, and about 15% don't even know it. Unfortunately, after a few years of an annual decline in new cases, the number has leveled off over the past five years. HIV continues to represent a serious public health problem. Our topic today is HIV, and here to discuss this topic with us is Dr. Stacy Rizza, an infectious disease expert in the Division of Infectious Disease at Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you very much for having me here. You know, when I was doing my geriatric fellowship out on the West Coast, we, were, we had a clinic, and it was in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we were seeing young men, this is not back in 81, 82, uh, we were seeing young men who came in with Kaposi sarcoma, mm-hmm. and um, I had never seen that before, but my consultants I was working with were amazed because that was not something that they saw often, and we were getting like two cases every two weeks. So we recognize now, or at least I recognize now, those patients had HIV, but we didn't know of the disease back then. Yes, you were actually at the very heart and the very beginning of the epidemic. Yeah, And in fact, that's how... The HIV virus was finally identified as the cause of AIDS, and how it was all put together was actually in the early 80s in San Francisco. And what happened was, as a number of people were starting to see these opportunistic cancers and infections that just had never been seen before in what should have been an otherwise healthy young man mm-hmm. or woman. And Kaposi's sarcoma was one of them. The other was pneumocystis pneumonia. And it actually was a pharmacist at the CDC who finally put it together because there were several physicians in San Francisco and a few in New York who were requesting a drug, pentamidine, that just was never used otherwise. And they finally thought, what's going on? Why do suddenly all these requests for pentamidine coming in? And they started investigating it and figured out there was Mm -hmm. a epidemic, there was an outbreak, and that's how they finally moved forward and learned that this was actually due to a virus, HIV. So this was a new disease. This hadn't existed for centuries before. Where did this virus get started? That's an excellent question. Um, There's been considerable research done in the phylogenetics of HIV. And to the best of our knowledge in the scientific world, this was a virus that likely started out as what we call SIV or simium immunodeficiency deficiency virus, which infects simians or higher-level non-human primates, monkeys and macaques in Africa. And actually, the monkeys and macaques lived with it comfortably. It didn't kill them. Uh, But probably around the late 1800s, early 1900s, as colonization and industrialization were occurring in Africa, many people were leaving the cities and hunting bushmeat because that was one of the best sources of meat. And you'd need a big knife, you'd need a machete. And as people were killing the monkeys for the meat, they'd cut themselves, they'd cut the monkey, the blood would mix. And it looks like the virus jumped species probably about six times over the last several hundred years. And so this started probably jumping into humans likely around the 1930s, 1940s. Much of it was probably self-limited because there wasn't a lot of Mm -hmm. air travel and international travel. But finally, by the late 1970s, it's all been brought down to actually what was likely one man who was an air steward that was in Africa 
got HIV from people who had it in the local area, and he's the one who brought it back to the Western world. Very interesting. So it's probably been jumping species for a little over 150 years, but we can actually see it start to spread to the rest of humanity through our mass transportation. So it's not as recent as I thought, but it's still uh, a relatively new virus. Absolutely, and new to large numbers of people throughout society, literally within the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, beforehand it had been in very localized areas and didn't affect huge numbers of people. So we've learned a lot about HIV over the past uh, 40, 50 years. Um, Is this one virus or does this represent a family of viruses? Well, in general, I think that's a good question, and you can answer it either way. But in general, I think we should think of it as predominantly one or two viruses, two being HIV-1 and HIV-2. They're different what we call clades or subclasses of it, which shows that it sort of evolves separately depending on what area of the world it was in and what people it was evolving in. But in general, HIV-1 is a virus. It uh, makes a lot of mistakes in its replication, so it can look very different in a person from when they're first infected in the 1980s versus how they are infected now, just because it does evolve. And it can look very different in two people infected with the same virus. But in general, the backbone and the structure and the action of that virus is identical. HIV-2 is a slightly modified version of HIV-1 that's predominantly in West Africa, and it is a little bit different in how it acts. It infects the cell a little bit differently using different receptors, um, some different receptors, and it doesn't evolve as quickly. It does not progress as quickly as HIV-1. But in general, I think what most of the world thinks of when they think of HIV is HIV-1 or that one single virus. How does HIV progress into AIDS if the individual is not treated, like in the early 1980s. We saw patients with AIDS. We rarely see them today. So how does that virus turn into AIDS? Well, so you rarely see them today in the United States in medical centers where people are being treated. Unfortunately, we do still see a lot of AIDS in many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And even in the United States when patients are not connected with care or diagnosed early enough. So the problem with HIV is it kills a cell called the CD4 T cell, which is one of the parts of our immune system. And when somebody's first infected with HIV, their body's never seen it before, they have no immunity to HIV, and the virus just replicates like crazy. Within a few weeks, the person will form an immune response to the HIV. They'll form antibodies to HIV, they'll form HIV-specific CD4 T cells, HIV-specific CD8 T cells, they'll have an innate immune response. Unfortunately, it's not like influenza or Ebola or Hep A where it's enough to actually clear it if the person is lucky enough to not die during the acute infection. But it does bring it down to what we call a set point or a controlled point. So the virus isn't replicating at quite as high a level and not as many CD4 T cells are being killed up front. And people can live in this viral set point after the acute infection for a long time. For some people, it's years. For some people, it's decades. And in some very, very rare situations, it's even the rest of their life. But over time, the host or the person who's infected's immune system develops what's called energy, or it just becomes conked out. Those cells are still there to recognize HIV, they just stop working. And so the virus starts to replicate again, and essentially the body loses control. And as the virus replicates, it kills those CD4 cells, 
and the virus goes to very high levels, the CD4 cells drop to very low levels, which makes people vulnerable to infection or essentially at a stage what we call AIDS. So once the CD4 count is less than 200, that's when people can start getting opportunistic cancers and opportunistic infections. And many times that's what we will see people at that level, what we call end-stage AIDS. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we know this virus can spread by blood products, sexual activity, sharing uh, IV needles. What are some misconceptions about how this virus can spread? So I think people need to realize that you need a blood or body product to transmit HIV. That pretty much any other activity in life does not transmit HIV. Living in the same house, sharing a cup, shaking hands, hugging, kissing, sharing a toilet seat, sharing a shower, none of that transmits HIV. So you can live very closely and very intimately with somebody who is HIV infected and not become infected with HIV yourself if you're not already infected, just from normal activities. Mm -hmm. You pretty much would need to share blood or body fluids in order to become infected. Mm -hmm. Is this virus considered a highly infectious agent or does it I mean, so if somebody got a needle stick, uh, is it highly likely they're going to develop this virus in their system? So compared to other viruses, which is, I think, all we can compare it to, Mm -hmm. um, not as much as like hepatitis B or even hepatitis C. Um, So for a single needle stick, the risk is probably around 0.3% for a single needle stick. It's not zero, but it's right. And of course, that depends on the amount of blood that was in the needle, the bore of the needle, how big the cut was, whether the person who had the HIV as the source patient had a high viral load or not, all of those factor into the infectivity. Um, Same thing for sex. If the person who has HIV has a suppressed viral load, their risk of transmitting HIV is extremely low. In fact, almost to the point that it's close to zero. Mm. If they have a high viral load, then it's more likely that they can transmit the virus. Network with speakers and attendees at the cutting edge of oncology at the upcoming Individualizing Medicine Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. Held September 20th through the 21st and designed for the multidisciplinary care team you'll be provided the opportunity to discover and discuss emerging topics in immunotherapy and applied genomics. To register, visit ce.mayo.edu and search immunotherapy. Listen weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. So when we're seeing patients in the clinic, the outpatient clinic, how might we suspect a patient has HIV? What symptoms might they present with? So I'm going to take that back a step and answer that as who should be screened for HIV. Okay. And I will say the only symptom is being a homo sapien. And that's an important message we try to get across. There has been considerable work done to see if doctors are able to predict who should be screened and who should not. And we are terrible at it. I've been a HIV physician for over 20 years. And if you put a string of 20 people in front of me and I ask them however many questions I think are magical or perfect, I'll be absolutely wrong. 
And because of that, and because of many other reasons, the CDC came out with a very strong statement in 2006, so over a decade ago, saying that all adults should be universally screened for HIV. So that means if somebody comes to the emergency room for a broken leg and they've never had an HIV screen in their life, it doesn't matter who they had sex with or whether they have a tattoo or whether they've shot up drugs, anybody should be screened for HIV at least once. Mm -hmm. If you come in for a blood pressure check and you've never been screened, it should be screened. Now, if somebody has, if they had their one-time screen but have ongoing risk factors for HIV, then we recommend screening at least once a year. Mm -hmm. So that would be unprotected sex, shooting up drugs, new tattoos, um, a child who's born to a HIV-infected mother who was not on therapy could be at risk. But in general, we like to emphasize to all providers that you don't need to ask the questions. You don't need to get consent. You don't need to go through it. Every adult in the United States should be screened for HIV at least once. So if a patient presents with symptoms, I, I assume this disease is very similar to others where if we pick it up sooner, yeah. the treatment options and outcome is better than waiting for them to present with symptoms. Is that correct? Absolutely. So our goal and the reason for universal screening is we want to get people before the CD4 count drops mm -hmm. and they get infections because we know preserving the immune system is better than waiting to people who are very, very sick and trying to replete the immune system. Unfortunately, we're not good at that, and that's part of the 15% of people who have HIV in the United States don't know about it. And many times those people will not present until their immune system has been depleted and they have an opportunistic infection or cancer. And if that's when they come in, Usually they'll come in with a pneumonia, they may come in with shingles, they may come in with a Kaposi's sarcoma or a lymphoma. Um, we even know now that untreated HIV can cause end organ disease, heart attacks and strokes, kidney disease, osteoporosis, osteopenia, dementia. So we know the virus can work not only by depleting the CD4 cells, making people vulnerable to infections and cancers, but can also cause some direct end organ effects. So this disease can present like any common pneumonia, and it's very unlikely that a physician or healthcare provider is going to recognize this as HIV. Absolutely, and that's why it's so important to take a public health approach that all adults should be screened for HIV. Because the thought is, is if somebody, if we find out in a random screen that somebody has HIV, they can be linked to care, they can be started on therapy, and they can do extremely well. If we don't know and we let them get an infection, it can be untreated HIV for a long time, which doesn't only hurt the immune system, but as I said earlier, hurts the end organ. But then there's a risk even beyond that. As we always say in the infectious disease world, there's two characters in the play, not just one. So as providers, if we miss somebody who has cancer, or we miss somebody who has diabetes, or we miss somebody who has heart disease, one person suffers, one person dies. But if we miss somebody who has HIV, they came into our clinic, we saw them, we were treating them for their high blood pressure, but we never checked the HIV. Not only is that hurting our patient, but they're likely transmitting it to other people who will get infected and so on and so forth. So that's why the burden is on us as providers to do the screening for HIV, not only to protect our patient, but to protect society. Mm -hmm. What tests should we be ordering for screening? 
So the test you do is a combination serology antigen. So it's looking for anti-HIV serology as well as the HIV antigen. So that can pick people up within the first few weeks, after the first few weeks of their infection. In those very, very early weeks, if somebody had a new sex partner or just got a tattoo or just shot up drugs or just had a new blood product and were worried that they could have been infected, um, you, it's likely that they would need to be retested a few weeks later in case that very, very early test was negative, mm -hmm. what we essentially call the window period. Are there confirmatory tests once we get the screening back? So that should happen on the back end within the laboratory. Mm -hmm. But what we recommend is anybody who has either an equivocal or a positive HIV serology really should be referred to your local HIV clinic. HIV is still a very complex disease. The decision process on how to treat them, how to pursue the status of their immune system, whether or not they truly are infected, all of that is actually fairly complex and is best done in a large referral HIV center. And by that, usually it means a center that takes care of you know 100 or more patients mm -hmm. a year. Um, if you come to a place like Mayo, I mean, obviously we take care of multi-hundreds, thousands of patients and other major cities, almost all of them have referral HIV clinics where you can refer your patients. Are the tests pretty accurate? Are there many false negatives or false positives? The tests are extremely accurate. There's uh, over 98, 99% sensitivity and specificity. There are some very rare situations where um, it can cause a false positive HIV, but it's very, very rare. And there are certain situations where people have HIV, but it doesn't look like it because they have one of these immunologic controls of the virus. Mm -hmm. And again, all of that can be sorted out in a referral HIV center. Let's finish up with a uh, typical patient example. Um, a patient comes into your office and says they're concerned about having HIV. What questions do you ask and how should they be tested? So I would say anybody who says they're concerned should get an HIV serology, no matter how they answer the following questions, but I, I will follow up with the ones we typically ask. Mm -hmm. So if somebody says they're concerned, we would do the test flat out. Um, the type of questions you would ask is about their sexual partners, um, about their profession, whether they hire commercial sex workers, whether they exchange sex for drugs, whether they exchange drugs for sex, um, if they use any illicit drugs, if they shoot up anything, some people don't consider it drugs, but they still will use needles and shoot things up. Um, whether they have had tattoos, and in some situations even snorting cocaine, if they're sharing needles with their bloody, you know, if somebody's a frequent cocaine user and they have crusty, bloody nasal mucosa and share a straw with somebody next to them who has a bloody, crusty nasal mucosa, essentially any way that you can transmit blood or body products from one person to another. We also ask about professions. Are they a surgeon who could have been stuck in the operating field? Um, have they traveled and had blood products, perhaps in countries that don't screen their blood products? Have they had an organ transplant in a country that doesn't screen their organs for HIV? Um, but generally, it's all getting down to anything that relates to blood or body fluids. You just brought up an interesting scenario. Let's say a surgeon has a needle stick with an HIV-positive individual. Um, can they continue to practice until we know exactly what their status is? So anytime there is a what we call a blood or body fluid exposure, there's actually a very well 
planned out action you can take. And most medical centers should have a 24-7 on-call HIV nurse and doc at the ready to take care of that situation. And we, we do here at Mayo. So if somebody is exposed or potentially exposed to HIV, we can start them on what we call post-exposure prophylaxis. So that's giving the exposed person three HIV drugs within 72 hours of the exposure for 28 days. And if we can do that, if we can get them in, and that's why we have this, we have a system on call with an HIV doctor 24-7. If somebody is exposed either through a needle stick exposure in the operating field, a nurse on the floor, we've had situations where the condom broke, in very unfortunate situations after a sexual assault, or even for many of our first responders, we have a policeman who's cleaning out a meth house and sticks his hand and unfortunately into a needle. We had no idea where the needle had been. If we can get those source patients, or we can get those um, exposed patients into an HIV clinic within 72 hours, start them on these three HIV drugs, and they complete it for 28 days, um, there's, according to the CDC registry, virtually zero, zero conversions to HIV. So fortunately, we have a very good system for an exposure mm -hmm. to HIV. Now, if somebody becomes, an, if a surgeon becomes infected, regardless of whether it happened at work or home or however, um, it is state dependent. But as long as that person, that healthcare provider, can show that they're on HIV therapy, their viral load is suppressed, and essentially they're non-infectious and follow universal precautions, most states will still allow them to practice. We've been discussing HIV with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Stacy Rizza. Stacy, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. That was my pleasure. We'll be bringing Dr. Rizza back in next week's Mayo Clinic Talks podcast to discuss the management strategies for HIV. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.